This month is a continuation of last month's ghost stories. Late November ghost stories here on People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I am your host, D.B. Spitzer. This episode is brought to you by The Shrink Next Door on Apple TV, a 2021 drama inspired by the true story of Marty and the therapist who turned his life around, then took it over. When he first meets Dr. Ike, Marty just wants to get better at boundaries. Over 30 years, he'll learn all about them and what happens when they get crossed. Check out The Shrink Next Door, only on Apple TV. Check us out on Facebook.com and check the show notes for the sponsors who help keep us on air and find out how you can help. And also check out Taza Chocolates Holiday Stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. Hey, guess what? Here's the show. Here we go. Read by Dale Grothman. The Face That Stared Back at Blaisdell by Edward Carty Rannick. These are the facts in Blaisdell's queer case, taken from a communication addressed to his best friend, Dr. Maynard Hamilton. Dr. Hamilton vouchsafes no explanation, nor do I. Indeed, there are phenomena in this world that cannot be explained, as Hamlet pointed out to Horatio in the much-quoted speech. The statements given here were contained in a carefully written paper in Blaisdell's handwriting that was found in Blaisdell's desk by Dr. Hamilton several days after the man's death. From this paper, he has pieced together the extraordinary narrative that follows. 1. Blaisdell thinks it must have been shortly after midnight when he fell asleep. Horrible nightmares wrecked him as he tossed upon his bed, and one of them was so frightful that he woke up with a scream, or thought he did. At any rate, he suddenly found himself in the center of his bedchamber, dressing with feverish haste. And here is the queer part of the narrative, for he affirms that while he was dressing, another man lay in his bed, an exact counterpart of himself. This other ego lay quietly asleep, his head on his arm. Blaisdell studied him carefully, and said he felt as a locust must feel when he looks at his outworn shell. All the time he was dressing, Blaisdell said he seemed to be impelled to haste by queer promptings that were as insistent as if some person were at his elbow saying, Hurry! Hurry! He finished his dressing in mad excitement and then hurried out of the room, casting a backward glance over his shoulder at his sleeping counterpart. Once outside his apartment house in Gramercy Park, Blaisdell hurried along, his persistent mentor seeming to walk at his elbow. A puzzling feature of this nocturnal prowl was that he felt a sense of familiarity, a feeling that he was on his way to keep an appointment that could not be postponed. The streets were deserted except for an occasional prowler or a patrolman who made the night echo with sharp blows from his club as he struck a metal post occasionally to remind the unlawful that the law was abroad. On, on, hurried Blaisdell. By this time he had lost all sense of location, but he was aware that he was in a downtown section of New York, a section he had never visited during his waking moments. But 
Although he knew that he had never been in this neighborhood during his conscious moments, he felt that he was on familiar territory. Finally, he paused in front of an old three-story brownstone front residence in Washington Square, paused with the air of one who has reached his destination. He walked up the steps and let himself into the house with a passkey. Nor did it seem strange to him that he had a passkey for a house that he had never visited during his waking moments. It all seemed ordinary and commonplace. Blaisdell quietly mounted the stairs until he reached the second floor, and there he paused before a closed door, overcome by a suffocating sense of fear and repugnance. He half turned away and then retraced his steps, as if fascinated. Something seemed to warn him away from the ominous door, behind which lay a mystery that the everyday Blaisdell, millionaire and bomb vivant, did not care to penetrate, but which this nocturnal, prowling Blaisdell seemed to insist upon. Then, without any conscious volition on his part, Blaisdell placed his hand on the knob and the door opened noiselessly. He found himself in a large, square living room, tastefully furnished and lined with built-in bookcases full of handsomely bound volumes. Everywhere he looked he saw bizarre weapons of defense, and men in Chinese and Japanese armor looked threateningly at him from dim corners of the room. It was either the apartment of an art connoisseur or a globetrotter with a propensity for the unusual. From this room he stepped into a bedchamber, and then started back with a little gasp. It was a luxuriously furnished room that appeared to have been transplanted by Aladdin's wonderful lamp straight from the perfume-scented Orient. Blaisdell advanced further into the room, and his feet sank into a wonderful, moss-like carpet. To one side of the room was an old-fashioned four-poster bed, topped by a crimson canopy. In the exact center of this bed lay a man asleep, with his mouth open. There was something familiar about the sleeper, and Blaisdell drew closer and gazed at him steadily. He was an oldish man, with a sallow complexion, and a wisp of a beard that was slightly tinged with gray. The ghost of a smile lingered upon his lips, a cruel smile that sleep could not make gentle or mirthful. And as he gazed upon the stranger, rage grew in Blaisdell's heart, a rage so furious that it almost suffocated him. Without a moment's hesitation, he seized the sleeper by the throat and began throttling him. The man struggled furiously. His eyes popped open and gazed up at Blaisdell's with a look of freezing despair. A slight froth gathered upon his purpled lips, and he squirmed and writhed like a snake in Blaisdell's unrelenting grasp. God, how he struggled! Blaisdell's fingers sank into the throat as if it were satin, and then suddenly there were no more struggles. The body fell back inertly as the steel-like fingers relaxed. Blaisdell pulled the bedclothes over the mask of horror and stole quietly from the room. He felt that his errand had been accomplished. As he went back over the route that he had just pursued, he felt again that weird sense of unfamiliarity that had at first possessed him, and this feeling of strangeness increased as he neared his own apartment house. 
He walked in and hurried past the sleeping hallboy without waking him. Once inside his apartment, he rushed into the bedroom, but his counterpart was gone. Blaisdell undressed with fumbling fingers, but his head had scarcely touched the pillow before he was sound asleep. 2. A shaft of sunlight fell across Blaisdell's face, and he woke with a shudder. Ugh, what a horrible nightmare, he said aloud. I feel as if I actually did kill that man. Then he yawned and rang for his valet. After a casual breakfast, he was glancing through the newspaper when he received the shock that changed him from a careless clubman to a nervous wreck. Queer murder in Washington Square. That was the headline he read, and then followed the account of the crime. A private policeman, while doing his rounds, had found the front door of an old brownstone residence open and had investigated. On the second floor he had found another door ajar and, going in, had found a man lying in a queer bed that was overhung by a red canopy. He was about to steal quietly out when something in the huddled attitude of the sleeper attracted his attention and he then discovered that the man had been strangled. The marks of fingers were plainly visible upon his throat. The police investigation had established the fact that the man's name was Stephen R. Rollins, a famous traveler and authority on spiritualism. He had lived for years in the Orient, and a monograph of his on occult phenomenon had attracted much attention in scientific circles. My God, said Blaisdell, as the paper fell from his trembling hands. My God, did I go to that man's apartment while I was in the grip of a nightmare and murdered him? Did I? These questions nearly drove him frantic. What should he do? What course of action was there for him to pursue? If he went to the police and told him that he, Herman Blaisdell, descended of a fine old New York family, had gone forth into the night and killed a man he had never seen before in his sleep, what would they think of him? They would probably shrug their shoulders and advise him to consult an alienist. And yet this man, this Stephen R. Rollins, was dead, and his description and that of his apartment coincided in every detail with the place that Blaisdell had visited in his dream. But was it a dream? And who was the other man that lay in his bed as he went out? These questions revolved in his mind like a vicious circle, almost driving him insane. Blaisdell aged after that. He looked ten years older, and his friends were alarmed about him. Dr. Hamilton advised a change of environment and rigorous physical exercise. Otherwise, he would not be responsible for the consequences. The man jumped at every sound and had a mortal terror of the night. He would put off going to bed until the latest possible moment and then always slept with a light in his room. Sometimes his valet would come quavering to his bedside in the night, frightened out of his wits by the frightful screams from Blaisdell. I didn't do it! I didn't do it! I couldn't have done it! He would scream, his eyes staring. The thing is impossible! The thing is impossible. When these spells were upon him, he would shake, and it would finally be necessary 
for his valet to give him a sleeping powder. These things became noised abroad, and he resigned from his clubs, and went no more, and declined all invitations. He was a broken man. A hopeless hypochondriac, just a morbid victim of nerves, or drink, said his friends, and dropped him. Things went on like this for months, and then one day, Blaisdell read another item in the newspaper that dumbfounded him. It detailed the arrest of a man named Franklin Sears, who was charged with the murder of Stephen R. Rollins. But he couldn't have murdered him. I murdered him. Murdered him in my sleep, mumbled Blaisdell. That afternoon, one of the sensational newspapers published a picture of Franklin Sears, and Blaisdell cried aloud in new fright. His valet found him with the newspaper in his hands, mouthing and trembling, his nerves vibrating like a taut piano wire. For the face that stared back at Blaisdell from the front page was his own face. Yet Franklin Sears' name was under it. Three. Later, Sears confessed to the murder. He told the police that he and Rollins had been chums and college mates. Rollins had fallen madly in love with Sears' beautiful sister and had persuaded her to go away with him under promise of marriage. They had gone to South America, where Rollins had amassed a fortune and had then visited the Orient. She begged Rollins to make her his wife, but he refused and finally deserted her. A serious illness followed, and she sent for her brother, who promised her that he would not rest until her betrayer had been brought to book. She died, assured that he would avenge her, and he had kept his word, although he had to trail Rollins all over the world before he finally ran him down in Washington Square. Blaisdell followed the developments in the Sears case with absorbed attention. He read the newspaper feverishly, and finally decided that he could stand the suspense no longer. He determined to go to the tombs, confront his counterpart, and tell him the story of the nightmare. Surely there was an explanation of it all. There must be an explanation. He had decided to visit Sears the next day, when the last queer thing happened in the tragic series of happenings. On the morning of Blaisdell's intended visit, Dr. Hamilton read in his morning newspaper that Franklin Sears, the murderer of Stephen R. Rollins, had committed suicide in the tombs by hanging himself to one of the bars by his suspenders. The paper commented upon the somewhat unusual fact that the prisoner's watch was found on his body and that it had stopped at three o'clock. It was just a few minutes past three when the body was discovered still warm. Dr. Hamilton had scarcely finished reading this account when his telephone bell rang. The excited voice of Blaisdell's valet asked him to come at once to his master's apartment, as something terrible had happened. He responded at once, and when he was ushered into Blaisdell's bedroom by the white-faced valet, he saw at once that he could do nothing further for his friend. Blaisdell was dead, and it was very evident from the stiffness of his body that he had been dead for many hours. "'It ain't his being dead that's so terrible,' said the trembling valet. 
It's, it's, well, look there. He pointed to the throat of the dead man. There was the distinct mark of a rope upon it, and this mark extended clear around his neck. He, he couldn't have hung himself, quavered the valet, because I was the first person who saw him, and there ain't any rope. Some unaccountable impulse made Dr. Hamilton pick up Blaisdell's watch from the dresser. It had stopped running, the hands recording the hour of three o'clock. The End of The Face That Stared Back at Blaisdell by Edwin Carty Rank Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show and how to support our guests. And thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe. And remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. Recording by Tommy Hersox, Carlsbad, California. A Ghost's Tale by Mark Twain I took a large room far up Broadway in a huge old building whose upper stories had been wholly unoccupied for years until I came. The place had long been given up to dust and cobwebs, to solitude and silence. I seemed groping among the tombs and invading the privacy of the dead that first night I climbed up to my quarters. For the first time in my life, a superstitious dread came over me, and as I turned a dark angle of the stairway and an invisible cobweb swung its lazy woof in my face and clung there, I shuddered as one who had encountered a phantom. I was glad enough when I reached my room and locked out the mold and the darkness, A cheery fire was burning in the grate, and I sat down before it with a comforting sense of relief. For two hours I sat there, thinking of bygone times, recalling old scenes and summoning half-forgotten faces out of the mists of the past, listening in fancy to voices that long ago grew silent for all time and to once familiar songs that nobody sings now. And as my reverie softened down to a sadder and sadder pathos, the shrieking of the winds outside softened to a wail. The angry beating of the rain against the panes diminished to a tranquil patter, and one by one the noises in the street subsided, until the hurrying footsteps of the last belated straggler died away in the distance and left no sound behind. The fire had burned low. A sense of loneliness crept over me. 
I arose and undressed, moving on tiptoe about the room, doing stealthily what I had to do, as if I were environed by sleeping enemies whose slumbers it would be fatal to break. I covered up in bed and lay, listening to the rain and wind and the faint creaking of distant shutters, till they lulled me to sleep. I slept profoundly, but how long I do not know. All at once I found myself awake and filled with a shuddering expectancy. All was still, all but my own heart. I could hear it beat. Presently, the bedclothes began to slip away, slowly toward the foot of the bed, as if someone were pulling them. I could not stir. I could not speak. Still, the blanket slipped deliberately away till my breast was uncovered. Then, with a great effort, I seized them and drew them over my head. I waited, listened, waited. Once more, that steady pull began, and once more I lay torpid, a century of dragging seconds till my breast was naked again. At last, I roused my energies and snatched the covers back to their place and held them with a strong grip. I waited. By and by, I felt a faint tug and took a fresh grip. The tug strengthened to a steady strain. It grew stronger and stronger. My hold parted, and for the third time, the blanket slid away. I groaned. An answering groan came from the foot of the bed. Beaded drops of sweat stood upon my forehead. I was more dead than alive. Presently, I heard a heavy footstep in my room. The step of an elephant, it seemed to me. It was not like anything human, but it was moving from me. There was relief in that. I heard it approach the door, pass out without moving bolt or lock, and wander away among the dismal corridors, straining the floors and joists till they creaked again as it passed, and then silence reigned once more. When my excitement had calmed, I said to myself, This is a dream, simpler, a hideous dream. And so I lay thinking it over until I convinced myself that it was a dream. And then a comforting laugh relaxed my lips and I was happy again. I got up and struck a light, and when I found that the locks and bolts were just as I had left them, another soothing laugh welled in my heart and rippled from my lips. I took my pipe and lit it, and was just sitting down before the fire, 
When down went the pipe out of my nerveless fingers, the blood forsook my cheeks, and my placid breathing was cut short with a gasp. In the ashes on the hearth, side by side with my own bare footprint, was another, so vast that in comparison mine was but an infant's. Then I had had a visitor, and the elephant tread was explained. I put out the light and returned to bed palsied with fear. I lay a long time, peering into the darkness and listening. Then I heard a grating noise overhead, like the dragging of a heavy body across the floor. Then the throwing down of the body and the shaking of my windows in response to the concussion. In distant parts of the building, I heard the muffled slamming of doors. I heard at, at intervals stealthy footsteps creeping in and out among the corridors and up and down the stairs. Sometimes these noises approached my door, hesitated, and went away again. I heard the clanking of chains faintly in remote passages and listened while the clanking grew nearer, while it wearily climbed the stairways, marking each move by the loose surplus of chain that fell with an accented rattle upon each succeeding step as the goblin that bore it advanced. I heard muttered sentences half-uttered screams that seemed smothered violently, and the swish of invisible garments, the rush of invisible wings. Then I became conscious that my chamber was invaded, that I was not alone. I heard sighs and breathings about my bed and mysterious whisperings. Three little spheres of soft phosphorescent light appeared on the ceiling directly over my head, clung and glowed there a moment, and then dropped two of them upon my face and one upon the pillow. They spattered liquidly and felt warm. Intuition told me that they had turned to gouts of blood as they fell. I needed no light to satisfy myself of that. Then I saw pallid faces, dimly luminous, and white uplifted hands, floating bodiless in the air, floating a moment and then disappearing. The whispering ceased, and the voices and the sounds, and all a solemn stillness followed. I waited and listened. I felt that I must have light or die. I was weak with fear. I slowly raised myself toward a sitting posture, and my face came in contact with a clammy hand. All strength went from me, apparently, and I fell back like a stricken invalid. 
Then I heard the rustle of a garment. It seemed to pass to the door and go out. When everything was still once more, I crept out of bed, sick and feeble and lit the gas with a hand that trembled as if it were aged with a hundred years. The light brought some little cheer to my spirits. I sat down and fell into a dreary contemplation of that great footprint in the ashes. By and by, its outlines began to waver and grow dim. I glanced up, and the broad gas flame was slowly wilting away. In the same moment, I heard that elephantine tread again. I noted its approach nearer and nearer along the musty halls, and dimmer and dimmer the light waned. The tread reached my very door and paused. The light had dwindled to a sickly blue, and all things about me lay in a spectral twilight. The door did not open, and yet I felt a faint gust of air fan my cheek, and presently was conscious of a huge, cloudy presence before me. I watched it with fascinated eyes. A pale glow stole over the thing. Gradually, its cloudy folds took shape. An arm appeared, then legs, then a body, and last, a great sad face looked out of the vapor. Stripped of its filmy housings, naked, muscular, and calmly, the majestic Cardiff giant loomed above me. I said, why, is it nobody but you? Do you know I have been scared to death for the last two or three hours? Oh, I am most honestly glad to see you. I wish I had a chair. Here, here, don't try to sit down in that thing. But it was too late. He was in it before I could stop him, and down he went. I never saw a chair shivered so in my life. Stop, stop, you'll ruin it. Too late again. There was another crash, and another chair was resolved into its original elements. Confound it, haven't you got any judgment at all? Do you want to ruin all the furniture on the place? Here, here, you petrified fool. But it was no use. Before I could arrest him, he had sat down on the bed, and it was a melancholy ruin. Now what sort of a way is that to do? First you come lumbering about the place, bringing a legion of vagabond goblins along with you to worry me to death. And then 
when I overlook an indelicacy of costume, which would not be tolerated anywhere by cultivated people except in a respectable theater, and not even there if the nudity were of your sex, you repay me by wrecking all the furniture you can find to sit down on, and why will you? You damage yourself as much as you do me. You have broken off the end of your spinal column and littered up the floor with chips of your arms till the place looks like a marble yard. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You are big enough to know better. Well, I will not break any more furniture, but what am I to do? I have not had a chance to sit down for a century. And the tears came into his eyes. Poor devil, I said. I should not have been so harsh with you. And you are an orphan too, no doubt. But sit down on the floor here. Nothing else can stand your weight. And besides, we cannot be sociable with you away up there above me. I want you down where I can perch on this high counting house stool and gossip with you face to face. So he sat down on the floor and lit a pipe, which I gave him, threw one of my red blankets over his shoulders, inverted my sits bath on his head, helmet fashion, and made himself picturesque and comfortable. Then he crossed his ankles while I renewed the fire and exposed the flat honeycombed bottoms of his prodigious feet to the grateful warmth. What is the matter with the bottom of your feet and the back of your legs that they are gouged up so? Infernal chillblains. I caught them clear up to the back of my head, roosting out there under Newell's farm. But I love the place. I love it as one loves his old home. There is no peace for me like the peace I feel when I am there. We talked along for half an hour, and then I noticed that he looked tired and spoke of it. Tired, he said. Well, I should think so. And now I will tell you all about it, since you have treated me so well. I am the spirit of the petrified man that lies across the street there in the museum. I am the ghost of the Cartiff giant. I can have no rest, no peace, till they have given that poor body burial again. Now, what was the most natural thing for me to do to make men satisfy this wish? Terrify them into it. Haunt the place where the body lay. So I haunted the museum night after night. I even got other spirits to help me. But it did no good, for nobody ever came to the museum at midnight. 
Then it occurred to me to come over the way and haunt this place a little. I felt that if I ever got a hearing, I must succeed, for I had the most efficient company that perdition could furnish. Night after night we have shivered around through these mildewed halls, dragging the chains, groaning, whispering, tramping up and down stairs, till, to tell you the truth, I am almost worn out. But when I saw a light in your room tonight, I roused my energies again and went at it with a deal of the old freshness. But I am tired out, entirely fagged out. Oh, give me, I beseech you, give me some of my hope. I lit off my perch in a burst of excitement and exclaimed, This transcends everything, everything that ever did occur. Why, you poor blundering old fossil, you have had all your trouble for nothing. You have been haunting a plaster cast of yourself. The real Cardiff giant is in Albany. A fact, the original fraud was ingeniously and fraudfully duplicated and exhibited in New York as the only genuine Cardiff giant to the unspeakable disgust of the owners of the real Colossus at the very same time that the latter was drawing crowds at a museum in Albany. Confound it! Don't you know your own remains? I never saw such an eloquent look of shame, of pitiable humiliation overspread a countenance before. The petrified man rose slowly to his feet and said, Honestly, is that true? As true as I am sitting here. He took the pipe from his mouth and laid it on the mantel, then stood irresolute a moment, unconsciously from old habit, thrusting his hands where his pantaloon pockets should have been, and meditatively dropping his chin on his breast and finally said, Well, I never felt so absurd before. The petrified man has sold everybody else, and now the mean fraud has ended by selling its own ghost. My son, if there is any charity left in your heart for a poor friendless phantom like me, don't let this get out. Think how you would feel if you had made such an ass of yourself. I heard his stately tramp die away, step by step down the stairs and out into the deserted street and felt sorry that he was gone. (laughs) Poor fellow. 
and sorrier still that he had carried off my red blanket and my bathtub. End of A Ghost's Tale Hey everyone, it's me, TV. Just reminding you, we have t-shirts in the show. Just go to pgttcm.com Check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we've got some shelf curtains in there.